Welcome back to another episode of the Start Well Podcast. This time around, I'm joined in studio with Jacqueline Vong, who I've known for many, many years, and we're reconnecting today to talk all things content licensing, games, merchandising, children's entertainment. We'll see where this conversation goes. There's a lot to talk about. Um, but with that, I will welcome Jackie, Jack, Jack. I hate Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> to all the Jackies out there. You, Enjoy your name. You, it's just not yeah, me. You keep rocking your name. Hi, Q. Hi. It is so nice to have you here and uh, to see your face after so long, after many years, as we've each fallen into family life, perhaps. Yes. It's been a, it's been a while, and I'm so happy to be back and feel like I'm back, you know, during COVID in a room with people and right. an, a gorgeous place at Startwell. Good job. Thank you. you. Thank you very much. This place has been uh, a lot of work, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's work that enables other people's work, and that's fulfilling to me. So I love it. Well, congratulations on all that. Thank you. Uh, lots to talk about. For starters, catch me up, catch our audience up on what Playology Incorporated is. Okay, so for the last five years, folks, I have uh, run a strategic consultancy in the youth, entertainment, and kids' space basically um, merging the intersection of licensing, merchandise licensing, and content marketing uh, together. So what does that mean? Basically, we know that we're consuming content in different ways and it's ever-changing. And so we have set up ourselves to be thought leaders there and create your go-to-market strategy from content initiation to development to creation into the merchandise licensing piece where you make actual toys and publishing and games and help you broker that huge gap and monetize it. Hmm. Um, okay, so starting, let's talk about starting the foundation story as an entrepreneur of launching Playology Inc. Wow. What's the, the like, what was the, if there were, if there was a context that you could paint for us of, of founding your own company? Because mm -hmm. I know that you work with some, some great, you know, toy companies, uh, people in this space doing all sorts of things uh, and you can call those experiences out and then just tell me a little bit about like how you went on your own kind of thing. So I had the pleasure of starting my career with some of the greats, Spin Master, Chorus Entertainment, Nelvana and Mattel where I managed Barbie, which, you know, as a female growing up as a child, <laughs> Barbie was the mecca of where you are and in the toy industry mattel being the number one toy company right. barbie was the place i wanted to be so when i landed the job i thought wow that's amazing but where do i go next so i had the opportunity after mattel to actually go to china and live out my dream of managing the territory of the mainland and creating experiences for kids there and Man when was that what year was that it was 2011, so okay. I left Toronto to go to Hong Kong and manage China from China, but um, living in Hong Kong, so commuting an hour a day, um, and bringing in Western brands like Transformers, Fisher-Price, The Minions, and Peppa Pig. So I helped with the conversation and the storytelling of Peppa Pig to making it the number one Western preschool brand there now. That is massive. It was amazing. But, you know, personally, mm -hmm. I um, ended up pregnant 
And I decided that I wanted to come back to Canada and not have a baby in China. So I unraveled all that progress that I had made in China, which was the best experience, but the hardest of my life. Right. And came back here without thinking of a job, just thinking about getting back on OHIP. Mm -hmm. I was five OHIP months for our listeners is our, our health program here in Ontario. Um, and for non-Canadians listening, watching this, uh, it's one of the great benefits of being a Canadian is that, you know, we have these social programs that we rely on. And as Canadians abroad, uh, it's a massive thing to always think of coming home when you need home, right? That's correct. So in China, they told me it was going to be double figures uh, in the $20,000 range to have a baby. And I thought, oh, hip, I'm Canadian. I should uh, repatriate. So I did. I came back here. I was eight months pregnant and I didn't think about what I was doing about work, but right. I felt very lucky because I've had these great experiences and an Australian preschool band that I knew in the past called the Wiggles came flying to Canada and they took me out to Taroni, which is an Italian restaurant. My favorite. In, in That's downtown yeah. Toronto. One of our was, neighborhood greats. Exactly. I was mm -hmm. eight months pregnant and I remember thinking they just want to catch up with me. That's so nice. They want to take out a pregnant wannabe or going to be mom. Yeah. Um, and they and ended up offering me uh, a job on the spot. They wanted me to manage North America for them in their licensing program. They had seen my work with Peppa and some of my work previous to that, and they thought she can handle it with a newborn. So I started a month later, and that's how my consultancy was born. Paint the picture for, for myself uh, and for our audience of uh, who don't have kids, of who the Wiggles are and what their impact um, you know, to what age set of kids around the world are. So the Wiggles are what we consider the fab four for under four <laughs> From the down, from down under. So yeah. they are four live action characters. There's one female wiggle and three male wiggles. They're all in different colors, skivvies they call them. Um, primary colors. They look like Star Trek suits. Yeah, and they do. They, and they shine. They're shimmery. They sing and dance, and they go through every early childhood development milestone. So they're perfect for the oh. age categories of zero to three and a half. Really taking you through movement, uh, early education, dance early language, um, counting colors, and toot toot chugga chugga big red car. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> so have I. Um, I love the Wiggles. You know what I, I my favorite thing about the Wiggles is that tiny piano. I you, love the little piano. Yes, and it's so um, cute. our purple wiggle plays it so lovely. So they, they incorporate real instruments. There are bagpipes, banjos, piano, um, fiddles, all you can think of. And then there's different sorts of genres of dance from Irish dancing to tap to, of course, ballet. Oh, yes. The ballet, mm -hmm. which my dear Ava loves so much. Um, so that is an exciting beginning to going out on your own, knowing that you're working with a brand that, you know, you um, will have a relationship with as a mother, in a sense. That's right. They, they actually sought me out because they knew that I was going to go through all these milestones wow. with my daughter That's as well as they knew that I I knew who they were as a brand because I worked when I worked at Spin Master about 20 years ago yeah Spin Master was their master licensee and we had seen them through the greatest times of their lifespan so they're a 30 year old brand and I had no idea what 
They the Wiggles started, have been around for 30 years. They celebrated the 30 year in 2021, so My this God. year. Wow. Um, and so there are adults who have grown up with the Wiggles today walking this earth. They're multi, it's a multi generational play. So there are grandmothers, mothers, and now new kids living the generation of the Wiggles. And they've left their classic songs and also developed new songs to really embrace the new sounds and diversity of um, where we're moving in society. That's amazingly exciting as a client to work with. Back catalog, new works, cross-platform, global relevance, everything. It's, it's legacy building. And they're one of the only unicorns, I would say, that still sell CDs and get gold records it, to this day. They're wow. still awarded gold records. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm sure that was an all-engrossing engagement when you got started, that one client. I started um, with my daughter six six weeks after she was born. I was on the road with her. And not only did I end up um, working with the Wiggles, but I started also consulting for a toy company and building a brand called Poonicorns, which are poo emoji unicorns. Yay. And we created YouTube content. We created toys. And I was, I was tasked to also create pajamas, <laughs> which were onesies with a poo flap. That's awesome. And we had... We had, uh, you know, T-shirts that said "poop." There it is, and I love it. All kinds of things. So I love it. We uh, we had a good run with punicorns as well. So people love them. Kids love punicorns. People seem to love poo. And yeah. People seem to love unicorns. So why not mash them? Put up? them together. Mm-hmm. Honestly, my wife is not happy when when Ava and I, you know, make fun of poo and throw the poo emoji uh, stuffy around the house. Exactly. I mean, poo is magical for kids. <laughs> it really is. It should be magical for you adults in the audience as well. <laughs> Grow up, realize you're just big kids. Um, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. you worked on a kind of a new property with that. That's right. It was an emerging property and we were looking for a way to amplify the the toy company strategy. So we created YouTube content, which is why when Playology uh, really started to pivot, I thought content and licensing really go hand in hand because once you make the merchandise, you need to amplify it with a mm-hmm. brand. Or once you make a brand, you need to amplify it and monetize it further with a grow category like any sort of merchandising. I'm sure, you know, I'm, the industry has probably become, because now we're talking on global levels. So, of course, everything is so massive and there's so many people. So making generalizations is going to be difficult. Um, but I would say that traditional industries are probably, or traditional large multinational conglomerates involved in this space are most likely going to have, you know, different divisions of their business or consultants working on the same stuff that you, a small micro team might work on for a brand, they'll have a hundred people on. Um, what are the comparative advantages or disadvantages you see of kind of like, um, going at your own, uh, versus, I don't know, doing it that old school way. Very easy. I always say that um, if you're looking for a cruise ship, please go to one of the big names. They have the resources, the infrastructure, the red tape, the legalities, everything needs to be dotted um, perfectly and go through the process. I would consider myself more of a speedboat where I'm always zipping and zapping and pivoting when when needed. And I'm very flexible in, to ensure that we work in a very quick turnaround uh, when we need to. But we also get to the same place 
as the bigger company when we need to. So I do, I do consider myself a little bit more adaptable and able to pivot a lot faster and make decisions um, on, on behalf of my clients much easier. I think that dynamicism that you bring to a hands-on approach with, with all of your clients, because you were telling me earlier that um, your roster is, is just like, it's big, but small. You're like between 20, 10 and 20 people, um, Cu- customers. I customers. Say, yeah. Um, that's right. It is between startup companies to big to midsize, uh, toy companies where I, I'm managing, um, you know, different fragments of the business, whether it's their licensing program to their content development, to franchise management and also marketing and digital marketing. And I would say also what sets me apart from, you know, agencies out there or consultancies out there is my East meets West mentality and sensibilities. My experience on the ground in China really solidified some of the credibility I have to bring to sourcing, Mm -hmm. manufacturing, um, also, you know, producing my own products and being able to sell to retail, understanding the retail dynamics, understanding the e-commerce trends uh, from Asia into North America and then seeing globally what's happening in the world and what's what's trending over in Asia versus what's trending here. Korea is huge right now mm-hmm. in terms of what we're watching and consuming and music we're, we're listening to. So, I mean, you things- mean t- that note is about Korea going global itself. Korea has been really trending up. And I would always say back when I was even in Asia mm-hmm. um, that Korea was really taking its place as the leader in trend setting versus Japan. Yes. Japan was always a place where 80s, you would 90s, go. 80s, 90s, Japan was like mystical and decades ahead of everybody else. That's right. And now I would go to Korea and really do the trend hunting and sourcing there. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, this is stuff that, of course, locally, especially here in Canada, in this little, well, big swath of land with a little population <laughs> floating in the middle of nowhere, Um where I think, you know, we have this dynamic population that has living links to the rest of the world. And it's something that I always talk to startups, tech-based companies, SaaS companies particularly, about um, how to leverage our local population to market globally. Um, But when it comes to physical product, when it comes to kind of like this on-the-boots retail experience in foreign markets, um, I mean, you it's difficult for Canadians, I would think, to be able to negotiate these multinational um, opportunities in this space. If, if I'm talking particularly about merchandising, I would agree. I'll give you. I'll give you a perspective. I used to manage mainland China, so my target audience to kids was 800 million households, 400 million kids. I'll say that again. 400 million kids. When I would go to Shanghai, the population was about 30 million people at that point in time, probably in 2017, maybe more now. I would speak at a conference in Shanghai and I would say, good morning, city of Shanghai. You guys are the population of the entire country that I'm from, Canada. I'm speaking to you just in a city, Mm -hmm. Shanghai. So the perspective is is different. It's not that we're smaller in Canada. I think, I think we're just, um, we just get forgotten sometimes as America's hat or the gift with purchase with America. Right. And, or, um, because of our smaller population, we just don't have enough of the buying clout or the minimum order 
quantities that we need. So we have to get more creative in manufacturing and sourcing and also playing in retail creatively. And I've been able to do that with clients through different collaborations and partnerships, but thinking about different ways to manufacture as well and different ways to sell. Mm -hmm. Any anecdotes from, from those experiences? I think what's been really trending is not being held hostage always to selling to the brick and mortar retailers Mm -hmm. who have set ways in terms of timing. For instance, we're sitting here in October and I'm selling for 2022 fall right now. And in this dynamic marketplace, or I should say uh, economic context, not marketplace, you can't do that. It feels like, I mean, with the pandemic, with buying trends changing, with seasonality and the seasonal marketing that's normally put into the retail experience, not being there because people are at home, et cetera. Um, Yeah, it seems a little backwards. I think um, right now I've been looking at ways to cut out that timeline and see if we can go direct to consumer. And so the direct to consumer play has been a lot more prevalent day in, day out. I'm not saying it's easier. I'm not saying it's replacing anything. I'm just saying we're looking at ways to help commercialize in the short term for clients that that could use that extra boost in amplification for their merchandise. Hmm. Um, so Asia mm-hmm. as a whole, so much diversity. Um, you're talking about large populations like you just mentioned. You're talking about very, um, like the diversity in cultural contexts across the continent is mind-boggling. Uh, for Canadians that see diversity on this micro micro level, um, as a Canadian working in Asia, uh, how has the experience been in familiarizing yourself with nuances of all these marketplaces? That's a really good question. First of all, I'm Canadian, so I always I always led with being Canadian first, being from Canada. But when I went over there, I felt real. It was really important to become localized because it is very it is like night and day we don't even wake up to things that would be problems in Canada um, that are problems in China so one of the key things that I really learned is really to learn the local preferences because they're all different China's a very big territory north south east and west have different tastes and preferences there's different dialects but the main dialect is Mandarin Mm -hmm. Um, you would learn that you don't lift and land a strategy from North America into China right. and expect it to work. I failed early on in my career thinking that I had learned from the best. I did learn from the best, Mattel being the number one toy company, and lifting and landing what I understood was the best practices mm-hmm. from what I knew over there failed miserably. Mm-hmm. So that's something. White Barbie doesn't sell in China. It does because it's aspirational, but you can't oh. sell it the same way to a consumer and right. you have to have a, a price value proposition and a conversation about that. But toilets are very different. And going back to the poo topic, I for Fisher Price, I sold um, potty seat covers in North America very well. So I said to China, my company in China, why not sell potty seat covers? There's a there's white space here. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't do enough research about potty um, potties in China because they're actually holes in the ground. Oh, in that sense, yeah, the squat toilets. The squatty potty, the squat toilets, really. Yeah. So they would not need 
potty covers because yeah. they're literal hole in the ground. So we created a, and manufactured a bunch of these. Oh, and, no. and, and and it was a, like upper middle class, you was, know, maybe purchased. It was also all. an education point because whenever the Chinese would see the, the mass market Chinese people, I'm not talking about the high end elite people who have culturally traveled and have access to technology and seen what Western media does or Western world does, they would use the, the toilet seats and they would, there would be footprints on toilet seats. And I wouldn't understand that until I started talking to my localized staff. Right. And they understood it as that's a way to protect their feet when they squat. <laughs> I love it. So there are so many oh cultural goodness. nuances that I can go through. But those are just some examples. Right. Um, of. Wow. Culture so that you launched, shattered uh, me. You launched this. Uh, these are these things that we use at home, right? Or, well, yeah. we're getting away from now with Ava being three and a half. But that. Small toilet seat that you put on top of a normal Correct. toilet for kids, and then they take their little steppy thing and they step up, uh, or so you they help won't them. fall through. Yeah, and they the feel toilet. safe on that. But you know, on the ground, they're just standing on them. Or there's no there's no place for you to actually put. It would just fall in the hole. Yeah, it doesn't it yeah. doesn't make sense. <laughs> That's hilarious. I have so many stories like that. Cute. Give me one more. Um. I'll, I'll use one from later days where I represented the Minions. Okay. The Minions, huge franchise. In DreamWorks, North- like, do they own the Minions? Is this its own thing? It's universal. Okay. Um, And it's a huge entity. We know it in North America. In China, it had never launched. So there were three Minion movies already had launched, and we were launching the fourth Minions movie. It was the first time it had ever gone to China. And one thing Universal did not check was the trademark protection. Ooh. So they had signed up 50 licensees, me included. Our company was the, one of the master toy partners. We were going to be one of the first on the ground to roll out in combination with the movie. We were all called to Beijing, capital of China, for this amazing meeting, what we thought was an amazing meeting with Universal to you know, celebrate our partnership. Mm. Instead, they used the meeting to inform us that, thank you so much for getting involved with this franchise. In China, we are changing the name of Minions to Little Yellow People. <gasps> and I, in the audience, Canadian-minded, thought to myself, oh And nobody my was laughing in this goodness. meeting. Goodness. No, no I started laughing. Yeah, because it's a joke, right? Surely it's got to be a joke. Little Yellow People? For China. For the Chinese market. So, you know... For That's the con- not racist. It's just objectively descriptive right and you know all my life i know asian people might have been called yellow people and so i thought oh my gosh i yeah mm-hmm. um the second thing minions have glasses and lots of asian people have glasses minions work on a, an assembly line the chinese are known as the world's factory the minions follow an evil leader i thought there would be a comparison drawn to chairman xi which is china's uh chairman yeah. And, you know, he's the chief in command there. So I didn't think it was a great idea. Nevertheless, I tried to call um, California from China. And they were like, listen, you guys are running your own ship. It is independent. We're part of the same team, but it is an independent thing. They've they've sacrificed a lot of money into rebranding it. And what do you think happened? Well, I'll tell you. The folks that didn't pay into the licensing and become the official merchandise and could use minions because they weren't asking for approval mm-hmm. were the ones who won. The mm-hmm. ones who didn't win were the official merchandise of little yellow people because those who know, knew the minions franchise thought 
why do the little yellow people look like counterfeits? Hmm. So it flipped the script. Hmm. And so people kind of like selling quote unquote minions locally were making money on the streets. So you can see a lot of the street vendors, a lot of the bargains, a lot of anything that yeah. was an official merchandise that were in stores were the ones that were selling like hotcakes. And then do they drop the little yellow people subsequently as the name of the toy? They sunk a hundred million dollars into rebranding it. So they were just going to keep going. Wow. That's a lot of money mm-hmm. in a rebrand. The experiences that you've had as a Canadian in Asia have probably um, kind of changed the way you want to do business and who you want to do business with. Tell me a little bit about how what you do is forever changed by the experiences of being based there um, and having expertise in that region. So one of the divisions I have in my organization is the sourcing and manufacturing. And I have seen firsthand how manufacturing lines and factory workers uh, work in China. And I know that 80% of the world's pop-up production, especially in toys, toy manufacturing, which is something I know very well, um, go through China. But with supply chain being the way it is with the issues on labor and shortages of um, container ships and cargo and drivers. I have also been one of the more outspoken people to look for alternatives beyond China because it feels like we have all our eggs in the global basket in Mm -hmm. China for Mm -hmm. production. Mm -hmm. And costs are going up in China, Mm -hmm. even pre-pandemic, right? And like I know um, we have friends, they're actually a partner of of Startwell for our... um, we're going to have a housewares and, and, and uh, clothing line come out uh, next year. And you're not asking me as your merchandise expert? I know. We will have subsequent oh conversations goodness. about this. Uh, but there are some Canadians that are out there. Uh, their brand is called Juma, mm-hmm. and that's also their last name. And we've partnered up to do some really interesting clothes that fit this kind of agile work uh, life that we see our customers on campus pursuing. So it's like a custom design clothing line for the new way of working. That kind of like comfortable, but you look smart vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And globally conscious, you know. Um, Of course. Yeah. And so, uh, but what was interesting is they're telling me about, you know, how the rising costs in not only the raw materials, uh, cotton and so on, uh, have been going up, textiles have been going up, but then labor costs. And they've come up with really innovative manufacturing techniques uh, and all of their textiles now are made out of recycled PET because it's actually not just because it's cheaper, it's also great for the environment. Well, it's still plastic, but it's reusing something. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of like this, you know, multi bottom layer. But interestingly enough, right now, not only is cost going up in raw materials and um, laborers, but energy, right? Mm. And we know there have been rolling blackouts in China to really save and conserve the energy production for heat because mm-hmm. it is going into some of the win- some of China goes into winter and we are going into the holiday season which is the time that we really use a lot of coal for production so right. it has been it has been a big issue so pandemic labor sor- shortage and labor cost crisis energy crisis, mm-hmm. the container ports, um, lack of drivers on our side um, in North America to, 
to take the merchandise off and to pack it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Suez Canal, all of these have led to this enormous disaster of um, not getting our toys in time for Christmas. You know what's funny is like in all the things you just listed, there was there was all these great, you know, poignant, uh, complex issues. And then the Suez Canal... <laughs> Is like as important as a as a stumbling block, but such a hilarious situation. Am I right in remembering that there was basically a boat that got stuck in the mud and then blocked up all the other boats, and then the owners of the boat didn't want to figure it out because they were like, "It's not worth it on paper to us to figure this out." You keep the boat, keep the merchandise. Insurance will probably help us out. And then the operators of the canal were like left holding the poop. It was. It is one of the narrowest canals in all of the world, but also one of the most commercial, where all everybody goes through. And so, if you can imagine, like a plug in in a hole, yeah, and not being able to remove it for days, right? And the backup that it causes because everything's on a schedule. So, yeah, that's that's what happened. And then we there. There's been an uptick in pirates. I can get into pirates. Yeah, can people we go there for lo- a few minutes? Just tell me about losing, pirates. People are losing merchandise because they're being seized by literal Are we talking pirates. just like Somalis or it's other people getting in the game? I wouldn't just, you know, generalize and say it's the Somalis, <laughs> but I'd say pirates. They are out there. There are warehouse pirates also, you know, trying to hold your merchandise hostage. Wow. So there, there's a lot of uptake about creative um, thievery, I feel. Yeah, well, I know I know Vice has been reporting on on some of this stuff. I've been picking up on some of these stories. They're talking a one it's a mixture of like piracy and and counterfeiting, mm-hmm. and how they're kind of like interrelated. It seems like, and it could be because you know counterfeiters know what the value of the original product is, and if it goes up to such a point, they're gonna try and even restrict or control that price to drive up demand for their pirated version. A thousand percent. Yeah. I, I worked in China. Not only did we manufacture legitimate product, but there's a whole marketplace, you know, to ensure that factories are making counterfeit products. And while I was on the counterfeit protection side because I was representing brands, it's a big business. And to get local government enforcement and the government to buy into production, you have to spend a lot of money because their whole business of ensuring that people work um, in factories. Right. They don't care. There are so many factors that rely on this uh, manufacturing of counterfeits. Of course, yeah. It's more like it's more important to the society, let's say, That's right. to have employment uh, without thinking of what the employment necessarily is involved with. Of course, globally, this has implications in all sorts of ways and, and, and opens the door to human rights issues. And I personally have seen this, of course, as someone who's lived in Africa. And we see some of the work that children do, unfortunately, and other people who are you know, at gunpoint in mines in Central Africa, so we can have iPhones or whatever the issue is. This right. does have its uh, tentacles. Um, but we digressed because <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. But I want to go back to that idea of differentiated um, sourcing across Asia and the idea of, okay, there are some issues in, in China uh, to do with you know energy and so on. Um, so recently, um, you know, during COVID, a lot of people, even pre-COVID, a lot of Manufacturers were looking for ways to not rely heavily on Asia. And so one of the areas that were were investigated was Southeast Asia. So mm-hmm. Vietnam, Bang, you know, all the Malaysia. Philippines, Malaysia. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about that is 
China has had a lot of time to perfect their manufacturing process and Vietnam was, or, you know, Southeast Asia as a territory is a good region to potentially create components, but essentially it always goes back and gets consolidated in China. So you end up relying on China to manufacture it, package it, and send it back to uh, America because the process isn't wholly done in Vietnam or Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. The other territory that has been emerging is India. Mm -hmm. India is the one place that I think has a population base that can rival China's. Right. It is one of the largest populations in the world. And one of the advantages of India is it's predominantly English speaking in the business world. Absolutely. So yeah. it is a it's... little bit easier to communicate. Um, and you have seen, we have seen in the world that lots of larger companies have started to look towards India and invest in India. I'll have to say quality wise, we're not a hundred percent there and across there. the board for all yeah, because yeah, there's certain things that are good coming out of India, but there's certain things that seem difficult. Well, I think they're about twenty years behind China because that hasn't ever been an initiative for the government to really invest in their manufacturing sector. Right. The the government Modi right now is looking at incentives and really building up the textile industry, the tech industry. And of course, he's classic. been biased towards his own province. And there's that whole Gujarat first question. That's and right. That's then the right. politics around the BJP and whether they're like racist and promoting Hindu, you know, uh, whatever. Hey, look, I did my degree at McGill. We went to McGill together. My degree was in Hinduism okay. and Buddhism. And uh, there is no such thing as Hinduism, you know, historically, right? It's right. kind of like colonial construct. And it's so hilarious to me that you have this political party that's extremely racist and in power leading a nation of what a billion plus people and uh having a preference for a particular supposed uh religious identity that if you scale it back a hundred years doesn't exist that one identity is made up of thousands of regional identities and uh, it's not at odds with islam or anything else it's just you know political crap but the point of the matter is massive population massive opportunity and it's tough to concert uh, the whole nation's uh, efficacy to compete globally. But more and more, I find that their company is very interested in having that conversation with India, partnering with India. And ironically, China has taken notice and they have started doing joint venture partnerships because they realize their challenges and India has less challenges in the labor force sense. They have a younger labor force. I think China is a little older and aging population, whereas Entering the Indian labor force, it's about um, it's an early 20s play. So there's a lot of life in India to develop. But yes, the technology, the infrastructure, the investment in manufacturing is not there yet. Mm -hmm. It's it's it is exciting, though, uh, you know, for any large plays uh, considering, you know, I suppose considering medium terms being in decades because I'd say 20 years out. But it has to start somewhere. And right now, I feel like there's a lot of investment going and a lot of education being done. In the last couple of decades, what's been interesting uh, from my chair is seeing um, China being able to provide uh, services and goods to the world with relative agility. You know, there's this kind of like China can figure it out mm -hmm. mentality in North mm -hmm. America, definitely. Uh, and we've seen it in the startup sector where people consider any type of hardware manufacturing as being able to be made uh, cheap and quick. Um, and they just take all that 
you know, for assumptions that they'll find someone to do it in China. Mm-hmm. Um, that is difficult. More, it's always from the anecdotes I've heard more difficult than it sounds anywhere to start, you know, creating a new product, especially if the uh, means of production requires unique tooling. Right. So talking about chips and computers and all that kind of stuff, your factories would have to be built to spec to build that particular thing sometimes. And even figure figurines. So creating an action hero, Marvel, anything like that, everything, every part that's articulated or non-articulated needs to be molded and tooled. And so and designed in a way that's manufactured efficiently for mass production. I can go into this in more technical expertise if you want but i know that's for another podcast sure no but it's 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 an apt point to to even say that which is that you know from the consumer standpoint something that seems simple no matter what the product is right uh has a lot of uh effort behind it and what's interesting of course is in talking about how products can be not only rapidly you know prototyped and developed and then copied uh wherever it is you know. Copied in a heartbeat in China, I feel like. Um, that's why I always recommend to anybody, if they're entering into that part of the world, to ensure that they have their trademark protection, their copyrights, everything really um, legalized. And even if you have your legal documents, there's no guarantee right there. Okay, so something that's, of course, always uh, top of mind for Start Well members, partners, and uh, our audience in general is the the kind of like topic, the ever flexing topic of the future of work and and how right now anyway, uh, you know how the pandemic has changed some of that um, embrace of remote work. And I'd like to hear your take on your um, how you do your work, sure. especially working globally, uh, and how you know it's changed in the last little while, and how you might perceive it changing uh, in the future. It's interesting. I have international clients from Australia, China, India, and then I have local clients in North America. And I used to be on the road eight months of the year. And uh, during the pandemic, I did everything virtually. So has there been has there been progress? Um, I would say investment-wise, I saved over an enormous amount on travel, right. on overhead um, for my office space, you know. I feel as though the hybrid model is what we're moving towards and what we as a society are comfortable with. There are people who are very anxious still with the coronavirus. I know there's still the vaccine um, hesitancy, which, again, I don't want to get into, but I'm fully vaxxed and I promote being vaccinated. But there's there is. There is definitely hesitancy and, you know, an understanding, especially that people are hesitant for different reasons. So Mm -hmm. I do have empathy and want to hear people out on that. Traveling will probably happen and conferences will happen. But I find that not having an office space and using something like Startwell will be my model from here on in because I do feel like there's more efficiency in not investing and putting myself on a lease Mm -hmm. and that overhead and having a space like this to really satisfy all the needs that I can do and then not use my home because my home has been my office and my home is also the house of two children who are very young (laughs) and it's a tornado. So I would love to have more productivity during the day with the flow of work um, at a place that's so zen. Thank you. Yeah, it is very chill here. Um, 
I think, you know, it's interesting because I think this thing of being, you know, in the last little while, perhaps, uh, and, and tell me your experience, but for a lot of people I'm talking to, the, shall we say, you know, the quick uh, embrace of trying to do everything digitally um, and not taking time out of your day to travel long distances to get to the office and all these sorts of things um, have enabled people to focus on kind of what they want, save some time in their day and all that stuff. But the, the lingering Achilles heel to the model is sitting at home all day. So being able to choose to work in a context where you need focus when you need it, um, definitely, you know, we believe is the future. But how does that interrelate with the way you work in terms of being on calls, all, you know, around the clock, and then also um, ostensibly needing to have in-person uh, interfaces with people in your markets? Um, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I find that because I'm working from home, I'm unable to plug in and people assume that I'm always available. So mm. if I were to, let's say, dedicate some hours at a place and, you know, put it out there, I would definitely feel as though I've shut down for the day. And so that's even if you're doing remote, inner, like you're on the phone or you're on Google Meet or whatever, but having that Because physically I can time. shut my laptop down yeah. and actually feel like I'm commuting back and forth from work and my work date is done. That's interesting. Even yeah. though I know I will probably have a night or two that I would have overnight calls with my overseas clients, I would feel like I'm done for the day. Whereas right. I don't ever feel like I'm done for the day at home because my laptop is permanently on my desk and it's on all the time. I have another screen. I have a microphone. Yeah. I have my headphones and it's just there. So whenever in between meal times when I'm feeding my children, I'll run back to my desk. Mm -hmm. Or if I have forgotten, you know, to do something, I'll run back to my desk. Mm -hmm. This way I can tangibly shut it down. Yeah. It's so important. It's funny because I, for many reasons, right, for the last few years, uh, have on this, particularly on the Startwell journey, but, you know, I used to have a, a defined office space. It was a room that was dedicated to my office. Um, and that was, you know, before Startwell. And then when I was doing kind of, I guess it was at the time when I was running IBM startup program. And uh, if, if I think back, actually, we didn't, I didn't have an office at IBM. Uh, it was assumed that it was a remote position. So I used to invest in startup ecosystem spaces like this and then drop into a hot seat once in a while, you know, like go to an accelerator for the day, go to the incubator for the day. But I, personally, I hate that because... I love being remote, but I always want to come back to home base. Mm -hmm. um, it might be my like the the way my brain's structured from coding for many years. I like locking into a big screen mm -hmm. and putting on the headphones. Shout out to uh, you know above and beyond and and tuning into kind of like uh, progressive house and and trance and yeah. like you know the music that drives my focus. But um, so that's, that's an interesting thing for me. I like coming back to a workstation that I can rely on, but, you know, I think back to when I had a room at the house that was my office, I would want to close the door and, and that's wrong. I never want to be in my house. I never, I'm in the bathroom. I don't close the door. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have the luxury of closing the door either. Yeah. And, uh, so I found very early when I founded Startwell that like, look, now I've got 20,000 square feet at my fingertips to be able to carve out the ideal spaces to do what I do in. And then that's been baked into the brand where I'm like, okay, we've got a podcast studio to have conversations. I've got my desk, that workstation. No one goes into that office except mm -hmm. for me. I've got all these different spaces for different functions. And then, you know, it, it so happens that we find that everybody else is in the same boat here where people want to have, 
uh, I guess they need to retool their their minds on a, what's available to them and the opportunity to work in different ways. Um, but I, I do see this like being being at home trying to focus as a starting point to be extremely disadvantageous to um, feeling good about work. And then, well, it's also because you're at home, you think you have to put in the laundry, you have to buy groceries, you yeah, might have to start dinner, you might have to clean up. There are toys everywhere, for me at least. There are oh, toys yeah, for and all of us samples parents. everywhere. So just can't seem to get organized. And even if I do, my kids will come in and destroy my productivity. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, and then you don't want to have that mindset of being like, ah, you're in my way or you're not letting me do my thing. You want to be with them and be present when you're with them. You know, it's like mostly. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> I love them. Don't get me wrong. They just are rambunctious little crew right now. Oh, yeah. Understood, man. I live the life. <laughs> I live the life. Um, I want to hear a little bit on the kind of, um, I guess, what does next year look like for you? Wow. Can you answer that? Um. Well, we're right now in different life cycles of different brands. So I manage the Wiggles and Elf on the Shelf and we're going into the holiday season. So Elf on the Shelf licensing for Canada will be big. Right after um, American Thanksgiving, we start the social media program and it's holidays. So this is a really fun brand to work on and I have a lot of fun um, merchandise coming out. Mm -hmm. So that will be my holiday starting next year when we start the year over again. I will be working on some new content creation with creators, and that will be very exciting. We're about to revolutionize some white space in the kids' world, and I'm very interested to see how well it does for our launch, which That's is happening in a couple of weeks. Quite a quite a detailless, uh, you know, teaser there. Uh, I I can't let you know, but I once you know, if I'm back on this podcast, I will be happy to report. Hopefully, that we have pioneered some space interesting and, and exciting. um it's kids space and that's a space that i know so well as a mother but also in the industry for over 20 years um so that's exciting and that will be you know a project that i i'll be living and breathing and then a couple of other other amazing projects so i'm in i'm in the crypto metaverse mm -hmm. and that is such a fascinating space because it's young it's ever-changing. It's so fast-paced. And there's so much currency being exchanged. And what I'm doing is I'm pioneering not crypto, but I'm I'm bridging the gap between crypto and what we know in real life and putting them together uh, with a brand that is one of the OG brands, but they've created a whole cast of characters, which they're calling the superhero of cryptocurrency. And I think there's future building right there. Wow. Okay, so that's definitely another podcast. We've got a couple of reasons. We've got this big teaser looming question of what you're working on to revolutionize white space in this kind of kids entertainment area. And then I should I shouldn't fail to mention some of the other clients that I work for are, you know, the coolest pop culture toy companies out there that I'm working on nostalgia. I'm working on all things chuggy, if you know those millennials know what I'm talking about. TikTok initiatives. I'm working on going after licenses in gaming and anime, which are huge spaces. Mm. Um, and I'll say Super Impulse is one of my, my clients, and they've just launched DDR, which is Dance Dance Revolution, miniaturized for fidget and finger play. So that's crazy. Blowing your minds. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that's a holiday season play right now. 
Excellent. So that's a, a recommendation of parents to go and pick it up. For parents, not kids, because I think DDR is really aimed at people who know DDR. Yeah. I didn't go there. I know what I know what it is, but you know, I, I maybe because I, I was a little awkward with my feet. <laughs> well, you can play with it with oh, your my hands fingers. now. Yeah. I'm pretty good. I used to have a kalimba. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Little finger piano. I was yeah. pretty good with that. So yeah. maybe I'll be good with this. And Never feel know. special. It's, fidget is huge right now because, you know, everybody is at their desk all the time. Feeling anxious. And needing to focus. Right. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. And timely. Very Christmas. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, is there a particular a place you want to direct anyone who's interested in learning more about playology or uh, figuring out how to work with you? Check me out on socials at Playology INTL or at my website, which seems outdated to call out, but playologyintl.com. Awesome. It was a pleasure having you on. Nice to speak to you.